Welcome to the Seed Time Money Podcast. We are your hosts, Bob and Linda Lodick. This is a hope-filled podcast that'll help you save, earn, give, grow, and actually enjoy your money. We don't hold anything back. We share everything that we've learned on our journey. Everything from being 100% broke, to paying off our house by age 31, to finding work with purpose, to giving more than we ever dreamed possible, all while having a blast on this adventure that God has led us on. And if you want to achieve true financial freedom and design a life of eternal impact, this is the show for you. We are so glad you're here. Let's get to it. Hey, everybody. I am excited today. We get to bring back another guest who's been with us many times, Joshua Becker, best-selling author, just kind of my minimalist mentor who oh has kind goodness. of kicked my butt and showed me the error of my ways of helping me get rid of all the junk in my house. When you said you were excited for today's episode, I was looking forward to hearing who the guest was going to be. Yeah, well, it's you, buddy. (laughs) Joshua has a new book out that is a little bit less on minimalism and more, um, I think, like a higher level, uh, that level of minimalism, which the book's called Things That Matter. And it's about how to live a life focused on the things that matter. And I love it. I haven't been able to finish it yet. I'm a few chapters in. But here's the deal. So I turned 40 about a year ago. And something really unexpected happened to me. It wasn't that I ran out and bought a sports car. It wasn't that I had like the typical midlife crisis or anything like that. I don't even think I had a midlife crisis. But something happened where in my brain, it's like a switch flipped where I went from putting a whole lot of my energy thinking way down the line. And I'm trying to explain this the best way, but I'll use this in terms of financial energy. A lot of my financial energy, maybe towards saving up for retirement, for saving for kids' college, like just thinking way down the line, I began shifting my focus towards, all right, what if I don't even live that long? And what if I don't live to retirement age of age 65 or something like that? Or even if I make it to that point, what if I'm not healthy enough to do some of these things I'd actually like to do with my family. So some of this might be travel. Some of this might just be using my time in a way where I I take my son out on a random day to go get ice cream rather than I have to work eight, 10 hours every day. Something in my brain just kind of switched where it's like, all right, I want to lean more in this direction. I've done a really good job, I think, of stewarding and managing my money well. And I think a lot of these things, and as a result, we have some money saved for retirement and all this stuff. But I want to live a life with no regrets. I want to live a life where I don't get to be age 60 and look back and say, man, those last 20 years, I did a good job saving a whole whole bunch of money and I have whatever, an extra zero on my bank account, but I missed out on all these opportunities to spend time with my kids to do something that mattered. So I'm saying all this to say that you know exactly what I'm talking about here. Did you have a moment like this? Did this happen when you turned 40? Or like, how did you kind of have this similar thing that kind of caused you to write this book? Boy, that is an interesting question. Was there a moment? I can't really picture a specific moment. But it wasn't when you turned 40. (laughs) No, I don't even remember turning 40. It was seven years ago. I think the book is more a compilation of a lot of different little questions that were big, but different Mm -hmm. little questions that were prompted along the way that started with minimalism, started with owning less and becoming intentional with the things that I owned, trying to just own what I need and rather than wasting a lot of time and money on things that I didn't need. I can remember the way I articulate it pretty well is there did come a time where I started to ask myself, 
well, what's the point of money if it's not just to buy a whole bunch of stuff? What's the point of all the money over what I need because I don't need nearly as much money as I thought I need? Like, how does this play into my life? Which then prompted me to ask the next question of, well, what's the point of work? Because there are a lot of people who are pursuing minimalism and they're like, I can't wait to stop working and I'm now a minimalist. I don't have to go to work anymore. I don't think I'm trying to get out of work. Work is meaningful, but what's the point of work if it isn't just to make more money to go buy more stuff? I think that's probably like the process of it. And then two pretty significant things happened. I I remember writing a blog post uh, one time, nine ever present distractions that keep us from a life of significance or something. Where like I really sat down and thought, okay, possessions can become a distraction. If I'm living my life chasing possessions, then I'm missing out on things that matter. But also money and fame, the trivial tech, like there's other distractions in life. So I wrote that blog post years ago, which then I started doing a weekend retreat on minimalism up in Northern California. And Sunday morning always became a conversation about more than just minimalism in possessions, but let's minimize the other distractions that keep us from a life of meaning. And I use that blog post as a template to eventually develop that talk, which then became the book years later. So I wish I had just turned 40 and thought of this book. It's it's okay. I'm just curious, (laughs) like, yeah, how you got to where you got. Because the unfortunate thing, I think, is a lot of people don't ask these questions. And I think that's what's so scary like living an entire life, getting to the end and realizing, wait, it's gone. Like, cause you know, I I remember being like a little kid and my grandma saying, I still feel like just a little kid. Like it goes so fast, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you're 47, I'm 41 now. And man, like, it's just true. Like, I feel like the last decade of my life has flown by and I I know that like this tomorrow, I'm going to be in my sixties or seventies or whatever. I just want to be someone who has the foresight to be asking these questions while there's still time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly. Totally. Which I hope is the point of the book. I mean, I, I want it to be the point of the book. Like how, how do we get to the end of our lives satisfied with how we yeah. lived? And not that we didn't make any mistakes, that there are some things we wouldn't do over, but as a general arc, like we get to the end of our lives satisfied with how we lived, knowing that we dedicated our one life, our finite resources towards things that actually matter in the yep. long run. And as I wrote in the acknowledgement section, it was a, a lot of digging into my past to think through, like, why do I view the world the way that I do? How did I arrive at this point so I can try to explain it and articulate what I've seen? And man, it was quite a journey of thinking through, okay, where did I first learn this? Like, who first modeled generosity to me? Where did that happen in my life? How did I grow up in a family where the goal of my job wasn't just to get ahead as quickly as I could and make as much money as I could, but my grandfather was a pastor and like I could look at him and he he didn't choose a job because of the money that he could make. He chose a job that he wanted to serve people and help people and be a benefit to others. And that's probably where I learned that. Like I, I grew up in a family that championed that and just the culture I grew up in and not everyone grows up in that culture. So yeah, you're yeah. right. Like not everyone asks those questions and where did they happen and when did they come about? And Is there hope for everyone? Like regardless of how they grew up? Certainly. I think anyone can ask these questions. I, I think uh, whether it happens when we reach a certain age or when it happens when we 
read a certain book or have a specific conversation that, that just sparks, am I living for things that matter? Am I living the most intentional life that I can? Yeah. I did a podcast not that long ago. And one of the questions was, hey, if you could start your minimalism journey over, knowing what you know now, is there anything you would do different? I really struggled to answer. And I'm like, I feel bad, but I can't come up with anything that I would do different. I said, maybe I'd start earlier. But then it occurred to me if I had started earlier. So I started when my son was five and my daughter was two. Like if I had started when, when I was in my 20s, then I probably couldn't talk to families in the same way that I talk to them now, or I talk to parents with young children. Like I learned some things, even not living the most intentional life that allowed me to make the most of the remaining time that I have available. And so I would think anybody who just starts wrestling with these questions or is wondering, is it too late? Like, no, like you can make the change anytime you want and you can be the best version of yourself or live for the most meaningful things now for the rest of your life and probably do it better because of some of the lessons you learned along the way, or at least talk to people in a different way. And I think that's such a good point because I think there's a lot of things like that where we have to get to a point of a certain amount of pain before that is the impetus, the thing that finally gets us to take the corresponding action to offset that. And so in your case, like had you not lived a little more like a typical American, like that's what gave you more motivation to actually do the minimalism thing. Yeah. And I think it can be the same thing with what we're talking about here, like kind of having some level of discontent you know, in which I feel like, you know, I have a great life and feel like I have a fairly healthy balance with some of this stuff. But at the same time, like, I just want to do it so well that I can't help but ask these questions and think about this stuff. In the book, one of the things that you were talking about, I think in the introduction or something, is this article about the top regrets of the dying. I'd love for you to just share like a little bit of what, what those are. Like, what are the things? What are the things that the dying like regret. I am going to answer your question differently. So Bronnie Ware, uh, this was back when I first started blogging, like just a couple years into it. She would uh, care for people during the end of their lives. And she started, you know, just form all these relationships with people as they're reaching the end of their lives. And one of the things that she would just make conversation with is, you know, looking back on your life, what are some of the things that you regret? Like not in a I need to see how that would come up and wanting to learn. And so then she published this article of the top five regrets of the dying. And the thing that fascinated me most about the article is how quickly it went viral. Like as soon as I saw the title, top five regrets of the dying, I'm like, I want to know what they are. Lay them out for me. <laughs> I, yeah. I want to make sure I'm not doing it. I know. I just asked you. <laughs> and I actually start the book mentioning that article. And I don't list the five regrets. Instead, the question is, like, how badly do you want to know what they are? Because I have mentioned that article in presentations countless times and always the hand goes up and says, well, what are the five? Like, what are the five regrets? And to me, it's just an indication that that deep down, we want to live a life that we're proud of. We want to live a life that we're satisfied with. We want to get to the end of our lives and not have huge regrets about the way we lived. Anyone who's listening to this could Google the article and could find the top five regrets, but maybe I'll just leave it sitting as 
what does your desire to know what those five mean about you? And I think it means the same thing as it means for all of us. That All right. You got to tell me one of them. You got to at least tell me one. <laughs> like what stands out to you of the top five? Because you had to read them and take something from them, right? I wish I'd spoke my mind more. I wish I had really? stayed more in touch with my friends. Uh, mm. I wish I had lived more true to myself. I wish I hadn't worked as much. Wow. And I don't remember the fifth. Yeah, I mean, and each one of those, I think, can be a whole discussion in and of themselves. But yeah, I mean, to that point of not working as much, like that's exactly what I was talking about, where it's like something when I turned 40, it, for me, just like clicked, where it's like, I just need to lean, you know, I'm not going to stop working. I'm not, you know, but my point is, I tend to be someone who can overwork. I tend to be someone who can be able to workaholic. And it's like, and especially when I don't need to, like I want to lean back in the direction of wisdom, wisdom mm -hmm. towards a life well-lived, you know? There was a quote in your book that I saw that I really, really liked. And I think this, you might've hinted towards this a little bit, but it was this question that I guess you were at a conference or something that was asked of you. It said, if you were to die today, what's the one project you'd be most disappointed that you weren't able to complete? And I really like that because it seems to just give you this hyper focus on the most important thing. Because we live in an era where, you know, or as a business owner, I, I can speak to this and just say, there's a million things I want to do. There's a million things that are all really good ideas. But a question like this helps you kind of sort through that to really find at least the ones competing for the top in terms of what's absolutely most important. And yeah, I mean, just talk a little bit about that, how that question affected you. Yeah, it resulted in the book uh, that I wrote, as a matter of fact. It was at a workshop, an evening uh, workshop event here in Phoenix. Charlie Gilkey wrote a book called Start Finishing. He's up in Portland. And the workshop was how to finish, like how to finish projects yeah. and what are some of the principles and a little bit of time management. But at the beginning of the workshop, he asked, he said, I want you to apply the principles of start finishing to something very specific in life. And so yeah. to do that, close your eyes. Here's the question I want you to answer. If you were to die today, what is the one thing you would most regret not finishing? And immediately this book popped into my mind. Uh, yeah. We opened our eyes and then like around the table we shared. And it was fascinating to me because there was a kind of a middle-aged woman next to me. And she said, I would most regret not preparing my two children for life. Mm. They were young teenagers at the time. That's and just great. the most important thing to me right now is just preparing them for life. And I don't think I'm quite done yet. And then there's another young lady uh, next to me, a single lady. And she mentioned an art project that she'd been working on that was very meaningful to her. And that she hadn't finished that. And to me, it was this book. And it was, yeah. I've been writing about minimalism in possessions for 10 years. And I've been hinting around the edges of how money can become a distraction and how fame can become a distraction and selfishness can become a distraction. Like I've, I've hinted around at some of those things, but I've never like sat down and just articulated, here are some of the distractions that we need to be aware of in order to live our most meaningful, satisfied life. And so literally, uh, that was early in the week. I thought about it probably for the next week, like 
Am I sure I want to do this? I don't like writing books, Bob. They are a lot of work, as you no, full, uh, as you full know. Man, you must and, have done uh, it wrong. <laughs> so I like took a week and I like talked to Kim and I'm like, I really think I'm supposed to do this. Are you okay with me doing this again? Yeah. When she said yes, I emailed my editor who had worked on some of the other books. And I'm like, I think about writing about this. Are you able to help me again? And he said yes. And I emailed my agent. I said, you think this is a book that people would buy? And he said, yes. And so, I don't know, three years later, here we are. There you go. Yeah. So I'd love to hear from you with what this book is about. If you don't mind sharing a point you can think of that is a highlight in your mind of a failure in terms of being focused on what matters. And then on the other hand, a moment where you're like, I did really well. This was a big success when I chose this over that. And so if you can't think of anything, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, but do any, anything come to mind on your Oh, you're not putting me on the spot at all. I can give you two pretty significant ones. I share both of them in the book. The Pursuit of Accolades. I, I was writing about minimalism. I published a book called Clutter Free with Kids that it was like two weeks as the number one parenting book on Amazon, like a self-published book, number one in parenting. I was wow. really proud of it. I had reached a couple of milestones on the blog. And I was just like sitting on top of the world until I remember where I was sitting at my dining room table. I was doing some work in the evening. There was all this chatter about a different minimalist writer who was highlighted on yahoo.com for writing about minimalism. And I was so jealous that Hmm. Yahoo put that person on their homepage about minimalism rather than me. Like I wanted it to be me. I'm like, I got the best-selling book. I'm the, I'm the one that just crossed all these milestones. I was, I was the blog that this person read to become a minimalist. Like why, yeah. why are they getting all the fame today rather than me? It was like weeks of this website and then that website and then that television show and this television show. And it just was like chewing me up inside. And it was just jealousy. I mean, jealousy and envy. Yeah. And I started to realize how in many ways, I wasn't motivated to buy a bunch of stuff that I didn't need. I, I wasn't motivated to make a ton of money. But man, when I wasn't getting the the fame and the accolades mm. that I wanted, I could really see how that had become such a motivation for me, which... yeah. I knew it was always an issue for me, but that moment probably really brought it into, really, uh, into yeah. forefront. It was actually Anne Lamott, the writer who ended up saying at a conference I was at, and she said, if you are looking for your fulfillment in other people's opinions of you, uh, you will never find it. Yeah. And I'm like, that is yep. exactly <laughs> what I was. So that that really gave birth to that, that entire chapter, probably the one that I continue to struggle with the most. Yeah, victory. When I wrote The More of Less... And The Minimalist Home, it was a a two-book deal that I signed with the publisher, and they paid me more money than I ever thought I would make for writing a book. And my wife and I had both committed to a minimalist lifestyle. And when we saw the final number, like the final offer for the book, books, it was a book, and then it became two books. Like We were sitting on our couch. It was blue. I remember asking Kim, like, what are we going to do? Like, we've never had a lot of extra money in our lives. And so minimalism was just easy, but are we really going to live this lifestyle when there's a lot of extra money coming in? 
And there was, of course, no question in our minds that we are going to keep living a minimalist life. Or the way I like to say it is, I discovered I was going to get paid a lot of money to write a book about how buying stuff won't make you happy. Like, what were we going to do with, with the money? And so we took most of the book advance, kept some for some of the expenses that just go with writing a book. But the rest we gave away because my income online was providing what we needed. And so we used the money and started a nonprofit called The Hope Effect, which is now in six cities and three different countries and helping orphan children find families. Yeah. So it's bigger today than it was when we started it and pretty good victory, I think. Yeah, no, it's awesome. You know, and we've talked about this a bunch, but like my motivation, Linda and I, our motivation has always been to make more money, but again, not to just store up bank accounts, but to make a bigger impact on the world and to be able to increase our giving, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we're on the same page with that. It's like, you know, you have big influx. It's like, all right, how can we change the world with this? You know what I mean? Yeah. If God has put this into our hands, the, the money isn't evil. It's just a tool that we can use to glorify him. And, you know, and I love that. That sounds like a big victory and a success. So I got a question for you. I don't know if you talk about this in your new book or not, but I've always known that to be true about you. Like you, as a matter of fact, you are, I talk about you. I I never use your Me? name. Maybe I should. But like when I speak about <laughs> generosity, I I speak about you and some of the goals that, that you have in life. I just look up to them in, in so many ways. So like, do you ever wrestle with like, are my motivations unhealthy in wanting to make more money or it's got to be a constant struggle of like, am I doing this for healthy reasons? Am I doing this for unhealthy reasons? Or have you just come generosity is just so much of who you are that it's like the more I make, the more I get to give away. And it's never, uh, I wonder if I'm doing this selfishly. That's a good question. I would say this. Yeah, I think there's always a wrestle and always a struggle there. I think the deceitfulness of riches, honestly, it applies to everyone. (laughs) Like, I think a lot of people just think that it's when you have a lot of money, but it's not. Like, there's plenty of people who are completely broke who are just as tempted by wanting to be rich, if not more in some cases than those who have Mm -hmm. more. It's an issue that we all have to wrestle with, and I don't think it goes away. But I do think, you know, the thing we're just talking about that makes a big difference I think one of the best antidotes for that is generosity. And so that is what has helped us. The thing that has helped me the most is this rhythm that we set of giving our age as a percentage of our income, which is God's design. It's just the unique thing that he asked us to do. But in doing that, in setting that pattern, um, it has created just the perfect amount of tension for us. Because before we did that, there were a couple years where we made maybe one of your your book advance years where it's like, we made a little bit more money than we needed. And I found myself just saying yes to everything without thinking, spending money without thinking and never having to tell myself no, you know, and not like necessarily buying a yacht or something. But in terms of anything I wanted on Amazon, like any thought that came to my mind, it's like, oh, I'll just go buy it. And like, I never had to say no, there was enough there. And I realized I'm becoming weak. That is causing me to be weak, to never have to say no to my flesh. Mm. So once God kind of introduced this idea to us of giving our age as a percentage, it's just been so good because it's been a healthy stretch for us. Enough for us to you know have a roof and have food and take care of our family and go on a vacation once in a while. But it's not too much to where we have this extra that's just this constant temptation that's unnecessary. Yeah. So that has been really, really helpful for us. Now, 
I think the answer is different for everybody. Like, I don't think everybody's supposed to give their age as a percentage. But for us, that pattern has really helped us, I think, just keep an accurate and okay perception of this because our desire is like, I want to be someone who gives away millions and millions of dollars, Joshua. Like, I want to do that. And it's like, and I have a flesh like anybody else to where I can sense natural tendencies for the wrong reasons there. But it's like anything else. Like, we have to keep our heart in check with God. And as we allow him to, you know, reveal what's going on in our heart, I think we can do this right. I think yeah. we can. And, and I want to be one of those people. Like, I'm offended that some of the wealthiest people in the world aren't believers who aren't using their money to impact the world to get more people into eternity. Yeah. And I just want to be one of those people. I just want to yeah. do that. I make the case in the book that, you know, overcoming distraction to pursue a more meaningful life is number one about identifying what those distractions are. And so I, I hope the book sparked some new thoughts. Someone just left me an email about the book and she said, I got your book and I assumed it was going to be all the same stuff that I've heard before, but it's number one about identifying the distraction, but it's also about overcoming it every day afterward. It's not eliminating these distractions. I don't think we ever remove them entirely, but it's noticing what they are and then fighting every single day to stay focused on things that matter in the long run. Yeah. And I think that like, that's just, that's our walk with God. I don't mm-hmm. think there's any push button thing where it's like, oh, now the devil's gone and I never have to like have any challenge like while I'm here on earth. It's like, we're in a battle and like, this is part of it, like dying to our flesh every day in any kind of area that the devil might want to tempt us in. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that we have to do this daily. I mean, this is part of why we need to be in the word on a regular basis. Like that is how we get strengthened up to fight the battle. So. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Where can people find the book? I mean, I'm assuming it's everywhere, but the book's called Things That Matter. Anything else people need to know about it? You are right. The book is everywhere. Things That Matter, Overcoming Distraction to Pursue a More Meaningful Life. I recorded the audio myself. So good job. If you like listening to this, you might like the audio book. If you hated listening to me, then pick up a uh, <laughs> physical or digital copy. But yeah, certainly available everywhere. And then my home base, my home base is becomingminimalist.com. And so certainly everything that uh, yeah, I do is great blog through there. And if you're in the Midwest, I'm going to do a tour through the Midwest. When my first book came out, we did the West Coast from yeah. Tucson up to Victoria Island. And then when my second book came out, we did the East Coast from Burlington, Vermont to Miami, Florida. And uh, with this third book, we're doing the Midwest. So Omaha, Chicago, Indianapolis, Louisville, Nashville, Nashville. Atlanta, Birmingham, New Orleans. Are you not coming to Nashville? No, I'm in. It's on. We're in. I'm in Nashville. All right. Great. Okay. Good, good, good. Um, When when are you coming to Nashville? You want to come? You want to be a part of it? You want to come speak Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. I'm going to hold a sign. With special guests. I'm going to hold a big sign. What date is Nashville? Do you have the dates yet? We will announce the dates uh, April 25th, but Nashville is right in the middle. The tour starts like July 3rd and ends around the 17th or 18th. So probably cool, right around uh, July 11th. I can't 10th wait. It's going to be fun. I can't wait to bring my family to Nashville. I, I talk about Nashville all the time. I always mm-hmm. say it's the city I want to move to. And my wife is so much been, better than so. Scottsdale or wherever you are. Peoria. 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 No, weather down there is pretty awesome. Like you got it made February in whatever part of Arizona that is, is awesome. All right. Well, great conversation. Love chatting with you about this thing and all kinds of things that matter. Thanks for coming on and sharing all that. And we'll chat again soon. All right. Looking forward to your book as well. Thanks, brother. 
Thanks for joining us on the Seed Time Money Podcast. And remember, money isn't the goal, but it's simply a tool to help you fulfill your purpose and your calling. And we'd love to help you achieve true financial freedom faster with our email newsletter. So if you want exclusive money tips and hope-filled encouragement in your inbox, head over to seedtime.com to get signed up. Knock, knock. Who's there? Leaf. Leaf who? Leaf us a review on iTunes, please. (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Know we are praying for you. And we'll see you in the next episode. (laughs) 